Father, we thank you for the psalmist giving us such rich theology from the first psalm all the way through to the 150th psalm. Such doxology. We ask you for divine insight that, that your spirit would instruct us in your truth this Lord's Day morning during this exposition. Use it to ready our hearts and souls for the Lord's table, the climax of our worship today. Even those words that another David just sang for us about a conscience being clear and that joy that only salvation brings. Rivet our focus on the Lord Jesus and what He affords to every sinner who repents and turns to Him. Lavish your love upon us through your truth. For the praise of your great name we ask. Amen. Some of us were chattering at the back of the auditorium this morning as the instruments were playing, that it was good to have our, uh, a flautist back. Some have, fi- some have finished college. Some have just started and yet others are about to start. And as I've thought about that, I thought about one of the worst experiences that I can recall. I don't remember a lot in life. I I lose a lot of my life. But I remember one of the most uh, difficult circumstances. You might chuckle at me, but when I was at, at Word of Life, the first time in the laundry room was difficult for this boy whose mom always did his laundry. And, you know, you, know, you, you, you laugh, but, uh, you know, there's a college freshman who went to the dorm laundromat with his dirty clothes bundled into an old sweatshirt. Embarrassed by how dirty his clothes were, he never opened the bundle, just pushed the clump of dirty clothes into the washing machine. And when that machine stopped, he pushed the bun- bundle into the dryer, never checking, mind you. Finally, he took the still unopened bundle of clothes to his room only to discover, gee, they're not clean. And I thought, wow, what an illustration there is for us as we go to the Word of God, to Psalm 51, for Christians, illustrating what we're going to look at. About not keeping your sins in a nice little bundle thinking thinking that you can control it and hold it at bay as David did. It's only when you bring them out into the open one by one and confess them so that God can cleanse your soul. Confession of our sins to God is essential. The word means to say the same thing. It's not to offer up any excuses. It's not to minimize it. It's not to blame God. Confession is agreeing with God about our sin, and it does involve repentance, or a turning away from that sin confessed, no longer to embrace it. Psalm 51 is one of the most graphic pictures of confession of sin found anywhere in the Bible. This psalm contains David's humble prayer for forgiveness as he sought cleansing from God after a massive moral breakdown in his life. 
As the superscription of the psalm suggests, it was written after David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, followed by the sin of murder against her husband Uriah. This is about a year after this wicked web of deception and sin began. It was about a year after that God directed the prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin, and only then was David quick to repent. This psalm contains confession of sin and emphasizes the importance of true confession. It doesn't matter if whether you know Christ or do not know Christ, whether you've known Him for a long time or have just been introduced to Him this week, down on your knees, we must learn to confess our sin. So we sit at the feet of David. There was another headline this week before our supreme justices took authority that wasn't theirs to do what they did. I was horrified and I sought to, you know, I, I went right to God and asked Him to help it not to be me, the next evangelical leader who disqualifies himself from the ministry, to take heed lest I also fall. From this very pulpit, your pastors had recommended a book, which is a great book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything, written by Tulane Chavidian, the grandson of Billy Graham, who recently disqualified himself. How do we make sure that that's the, the next person is not us? How do we take watch to our own souls to take, to, to take heed lest we also fall? An important step in keeping watch over our soul and to keep short accounts of sin as we come to the Lord's table regularly is to develop our repenting. Spurgeon said, a Christian must never leave off repenting for I fear he never leaves off his sinning. Would you read with me from Psalm 51? We are told this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And he cries out, Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin, it's ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire the truth, excuse me, desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, 
Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering, the sacrifice of God, or a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Thus ends the reading of God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word. David gives us several points on confession, six main points of this penitential psalm. Let me preview them for you and then we'll get into them. We probably won't get through all of them today. We will hasten the time. He in verses 1 and 2 offers a cry for forgiveness. A cry for forgiveness. Then in verses 3 through 6, a confession of sin. A threefold confession bringing forth a threefold forgiveness. Thirdly, in verses 7 through 9, we will see a call for cleansing. Verses 10 through 12, a commitment to holiness. Verses 13 through 17, a consecration of life. And if time avails us, verses 18 and 19, a concern for God's glory. Let's look at that first point of David's lesson on confession, a cry for forgiveness. Let me add the background for this if you wanted to meditate on it over coffee this afternoon. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 gives us all the background for Psalm 51. As he cries for God's forgiveness, asks God to be gracious, he recognizes it's based solely on divine mercy. The unfailing love, the loving kindness and compassion that God is not obligated, that there is, it is not based on human merit. He asks not for what he deserves. What does David deserve at the moment? He deserves painful discipline, but what he desperately needed was divine grace. A sinner has no right to divine blessing. We need that perpetual reminder, do we not? as we get exalted in our own opinion so often, to be humbled and to recognize that God owes us nothing. You know, as I was thinking through some of the principles of how the church is to respond in light of our culture going astray in their sin and iniquity, God's not obligated to keep His church from persecution. God is not obligated. And so when David cries out to God forgiveness... He's pleading grace and mercy. That is the only grounds. Though he had sinned horribly, David knew that forgiveness was available and it was based on God's covenant love. That rich word that we see so often through the old, older covenant, repeated often in the Psalms, that word hesed, His loving kindness, that for God to forgive is an act of divine grace whereby sin is blotted out. The sinner is cleansed. And this word will also reappear in verse 2. It will reappear in verse 7. It will reappear in verse 9. That God will 
blotted out. God will expunge it from the record. God will cleanse. What a beautiful, beautiful picture we'll contemplate in a moment. No matter how heinous the sins that you have committed, God stands ready to forgive if you repent and turn to Him alone today. And if you don't know Him as your Savior, talk to one of us afterward. We'd love to introduce you to Him. His appeal for forgiveness is pictured in three ways in these couple of verses. He uses the verbs figuratively. The first verb, blot. Second verb, wash. Third verb, cleanse. Vivid pictures and imagery here. Blot out my transgressions, God. He asked that God would wipe away his sinful acts of rebellion, his willful deviation. It was as if God had been keeping a record. Every single sin got written down in the ledger awaiting God's wrath and that God would blot it out. He would erase it from his remembrance. He would expunge it from the records. He asked that they be removed. The picture in this metaphor is of a human record that can be erased. We homeschool, as you all know, and that means grading of not just essays for liberty that I work for, but grading of students. And if you uh, are a straight-A student, you better not do your math in pen, or I will mark you off where I can. It must be done in pencil. Who can figure in pen? Well, that's the, the, the picture here is, is that uh, for the redeemed, God is, is, is writing in, in pencil here, awaiting our confession of our sin that He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to erase it from the ledger. Our transgressions. Literally, when he talks about our sins as being transgressions, literally, this is rebellions. We've stepped over what God allows. We haven't just towed the line, we've overstepped it. David pleads with God, God blotted out. Second of all, wash away my iniquity. And so here, he compares it to the washing of clothes. Uh, forget about my opening illustration, my buffoonery of laundromat and all that other stuff. This is a time in which every article of clothes you wore had to be washed the hard way. I think any laundry is the hard way. Our laundry, uh, it's not laundry machine, what is it called? The washer, thank you. Uh, it's going every day in our house. There's a lot of us to get clothes dirty. But you think about if you step in the sandals of the day of David, the metaphor of a Near Eastern laundryman who soaked and soaped and beat and wrung out and rinsed the clothing to get it clean. A lot of steps to get from dirty to clean. And so he asked God, wash away that iniquity. David compares it himself to a foul garment stained with filth. We ought to learn, beloved, that true repenters, if we're going to learn this lesson of confession, true repenters, we don't just want pardon. We want purity. 
God, give me the purity of an uncondemned conscience so that everything with me and you is clear. How often we must be going to Him for that cleansing so there's nothing between He and I. Perpetual cleansing of an uncondemned conscience so that we're living for Him to return, that when He comes back, He catches me right in the moment of my service and my repenting, not in my sinning. God, blot out my transgressions. God, wash away my iniquity. Thirdly, He prays, God, cleanse me from my sin. The final picture is drawn from the liturgical ceremonial law, the purification necessary for temple worship. He, he, spends, he, he mentions three different verbs, three different nouns, three different ways of saying, God, I need clear, uh, purity and, and, and cleanness in my life. Three words for forgiveness. I want it totally I, uh, my rebellion, my perversion, my falling short, take care of all of it. Like David, you and I need to be comforted by the fact that since his sins were forgiven, yours can be forgiven as well. The vilest offender can appeal if you come with a broken spirit. Just like the old hymn writer writes, Into God be the glory. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment our pardon from Jesus receives. We've noted David's cry for forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. Be gracious according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot it out. Wash me. Cleanse me. Note, second of all, David's confession of sin. Verses 3 to 6. With the cry of forgiveness comes the full weight of the heinousness of the sins that we have committed. You notice that he's not offering up to God some pat, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better. You look at people who are caught in the act. You know, uh, David was confronted by the prophet. Nathan did catch him. And when, when uh, Christian leaders are caught in their sin, and they, they do, okay, well, I guess I can't hide anymore. I guess I'll do the confession thing. Listen, is it simply a pat apology? Uh, oh, I was in an inappropriate relationship. You know, I sinned! I dishonored God! That gets to the core of the matter. So he emphasizes two main things. There's a lot he says here in verses 3 to 6. But you notice in verses 3 and 4, he confessed to the Lord whom he'd sinned against. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin, it's ever before me. Notice what he says in verse 4, against you, you only I have sinned. Is God the only one God offended? I don't know what I just said there. Is, is God the only one David offended? No, he's not. But he's trying to make a point here because there were a lot involved. Every sin that you and I commit is not a private sin. It's not a pet sin. It affects people. He said, my sin's ever before me. It was haunting his mind. His conscience pressed his guilt. You know, people talk about guilt being a feeling. Guilt's not a feeling. You might not feel guilty when you've sinned against God. It's a reality. We are guilty. Guilty. 
So he said, it's ever before me. You remember, uh, there was about a year he didn't feel guilty. Yeah, his sin was there, but he didn't feel sorry enough to quit and to get right with God. Haunting him. It was his, we're told that his young child died about a, a week after the con- confession. He had kept silent. He tells us in Psalm 32, verse 3, that while he was keeping hush li- tight-lipped about it, his body wasted away within him. He was grown prematurely old due to the weight of sin of his soul. But then he says in, there in verse 4, I, I recognize that that sin, though it included Bathsheba, though it incur- included Uriah, it included the whole nation. Israel's enemies mocked Israel. It affected everybody. Even though he had tragically wronged Bathsheba and Uriah, his ultimate crime was against God and God's holy law. Matter of fact, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he is developing his argument in Romans 3 about all man everywhere being sinners, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You remember some of the verses there in Romans 3. There's not a righteous man, no, not one. In that argument there in Romans 3 and verse number 4, he quotes verse 4 of Psalm 51. When he says, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless, Lord, when you judge. Think about God's law. When you break God's law, you're assaulting God. His laws aren't some arbitrary regulations, but an extension of His moral character. To break God's law is to commit treason against our King. Sin by its very definition, sin by its very nature is anti-God. It's anti-God. And so David called it what it was. It was evil. He didn't call it, well, Lord, I just had a weak moment. No, it wasn't weakness, it was wickedness. It wasn't just an accident, it was an atrocity before God and God's people. So, beloved, let's learn from David as we learn about confession, as we learn about repentance. Let's learn not to undersell our sin. It's a big deal. It's a bigger deal than we think it is. If only David had done as Joseph. We were studying Joseph again in adult Sunday school today. This was the second week we'll be with Joseph a little biography of him next week. You remember when uh, he's exalted in the house of Potiphar? Everything's under his charge. And uh, Potiphar's adulterous wife with the smooth and swelling words, the strange woman of Proverbs takes place. And what was Joseph's response? How could I sin against God and do this wickedness? If only David's response had been that. Beloved, let's learn at his feet. So he first, you know, as, as he confessed his sin, he first of all recognized it's against you and you alone, Lord. 
And there in verses 5 and 6, he laments his moral impotence. So he exalts God, which brings him to the reality of how heinous his sin was. And he looks within, and as he delves deeper into the source of this matter, he states that the whole problem is his own corrupt heart. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame, well, if Bathsheba just wasn't so good looking. You know, and if, if Uriah had just gone home and slept with his wife, I never would have gotten caught. He didn't do any of that here when he finally confessed. And as he delves deeper and looks at his own sin-sick soul, he says, I, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. He entered this world as a sinner in nature long before he became a sinner in action. If there's one thing our people at Newtown Bible Church are good at, it's having kids. You know, we always have babies around here, and we see all these kids, these babies, and oh, they're so cute. They got chubby cheeks, they're kissable, and all this other stuff. But you, you, you think about it. These are master manipulators with horrible tempers and their plans revolve all around self. They just don't have the capacity to manifest their wickedness in the same way that some of our older children do. David confesses here that his corruption predated his birth. He was a sinner before he came out of the womb. At conception, at the moment the Adamic sin nature was implanted, there's great theology on the doctrine of original sin here. The problem of what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah and before the whole nation stemmed from what he was before he ever did. He was a sinner. What he did, again, wasn't God's fault nor some aberration, but his own sinful disposition. A propensity to do evil. That is true of you, believer. That is true of you, unbelievers, in our midst as well. We have a propensity to go astray. David acknowledges he wasn't saying that the, he, he was born as, as the fruit of an illicit affair. He's saying that from the very get-go of life, from the very seed, we are sinners. But you, God, desire truth in the innermost being, verse 6. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. God's desire was for him to enthrone truth, to be transformed by the living and active Word. He'd been living a lie. He was attempting to cover up his sin. He needed to go to school that the, that the way of a transgressor is hard. He needed to go to school that what a man sows, that he's also going to reap. You can't hide your pet sin. Only a fool tries to hide his sin from the Lord. God's everywhere. No matter what your sin is, where you are, and with whom you're doing it with, God's there. But that, that was the tragic role David had been playing. I trust that's not you. Be sure your sin will find you out. 
Would you notice thirdly in verses 7 through 9 his call for cleansing? You know, he starts out crying for forgiveness and God's, God's mercy. He, he, he then confesses his sin and here he calls for that cleansing that he'd already somewhat alluded to in verses 1 and 2. He makes the same request as before, but in reverse order. He, he had said, blot out, wash, and clean. Now he's saying, Lord, clean me, wash me, blot it out. So he starts off with, in verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I'll be clean. He's alluding to the image of, uh, of a leper seeking cleansing. In such Old Testament cases, priests would take hyssop, which was a leafy plant, and they would dip it in blood, and it would be sprinkled seven times on a leper in need of divine cleansing. You could read about it some other time in Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19. What he's doing with this image is asking that God would restore rejoicing in his life, knowing that he's right with God, cleansing him of his moral defilement. The complete removal of sin would come, yet future from that vantage point. It would come through Messiah, Jesus Christ, Hebrews 9.22. It is only through the shed blood of the righteous one that you and I can be whiter than snow, that you and I can be cleansed. The Old Testament saint always looking forward to the one who was to come, the perfect one, so that David, as the imperfect king, the less than passionate after God's glory king, was looking forward to the one final prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus He says, Lord, purify me with hyssop, I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you've broken rejoice again. Let it rejoice again. The bones here, figure of speech for the framework of the entire person. You know, let, the, let the bones that ache and you, the ones that you've put out of joint because of my sin Be in place again. It's like this divine chiropractic adjustment. Lord, make it all right again. Make it fit. Uh, He was experiencing personal collapse under guilt in Psalm 32. His whole body aching under the burden of sin. Lord, blot it out. He returns again to the accounting imagery. Expunge it from the record. So having confessed his sin, having received God's forgiveness as a corrective to his sinful nature, David also petitions God for inward renewal of his heart. And you notice fourthly here in verses 10 through 12, a commitment to holiness. A commitment to holiness. This is a great part of the lesson he's got for us. When we blow it, we don't throw in the towel, do we? No matter how heinous the sin and our face to the floor and how guilt-ridden we are. Though we fall many times and though we slump towards holiness, 
We're learning the process of putting off sinful patterns and replacing them with righteous ones. We're learning to even change the thought process that leads into the moments and the actions. Notice in this commitment to holiness what he prays. God, create a clean heart. Renew that steadfastness of spirit within me. Lord, I need you to clean my heart. I need that purity that only comes from you. Lord, because if you don't do this, I'm going to fall right back into my sin without your divine working. A pure heart was something only God could give. You know, I think is interesting here. When he says, God, create this clean heart in me, it's the same Hebrew word, bara, create, as used back in the first verse of the Bible. When God spoke everything into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo, or maybe David's just referring to the miraculous nature of what God must do in David's heart. God, only you can cleanse. Only you can purify it. And that is what I'm depending on. I'm banking on it. Job asks a great question. We've got a great question in Job 14.4. Who can bring what is pure from the impure? And so David in his confession is recognizing God. All I've got is wickedness within All I've got is a a heart that constantly goes astray. Lord, would you recreate it in my life and give me that steadfastness of spirit to walk in obedience and purity. And he adds to his prayer, verse 11, Lord, don't, don't cast me out. Don't take your spirit. I've heard many messages on this and we even sing a chorus that needs to be enlightened by the wider context of the Old Testament. This is a reference to the special Spirit's anointing on theocratic mediators. David didn't want God to remove His divine power from his life. What David feared was what Saul experienced. David observed it in Saul's life, the severe discipline that he was deserving of, and would suffer if God did not accept his confession. He was painfully aware that when God rejected Saul, he removed the kingship for his sin and rebellion, signified in the Old Testament by the departure of the Holy Spirit. That's what David feared. He feared divine rejection. He witnessed it in Saul. If you wanted to make a pit stop with me back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, do you remember when... Nathan is him and Harn. Do I go? Do I not? God says, I've deposed Saul. I've discredited. I've rejected him. And uh, by the way, Nathan, you go tell him that. Nathan thinks, if I go do that, it's off with my head. He's going to kill me. So back in 1 Samuel 16, in verse number 1, the Lord said to Samuel the prophet, How long will you grieve over Saul? Suck it up, buddy, is what he's saying in in the Reardon Revised Edition here. He says, how long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. 
And you remember the story, familiar story, and uh, Jesse parades his sons before, and nope, not that one, not that one, not that one. Finally, he brings out the lucky winner. Verses uh, 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel 16, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Back to our text. David, rightfully so, was fearing that God due to his sin, would do the same thing in his life. Reject him as king, chasten him, and withdraw the Spirit. Thankfully, in the new covenant, the Spirit does not leave believers. At the moment of salvation, He indwells them. But we can be cast aside from service, beloved, can we not? We know what David experienced. He was experiencing the chastening discipline of God. So he needed God's inner spiritual renewal that only God could bring. God, don't take your spirit. Restore, verse 12, restore the joy that I once had of my salvation. Because sin and joy cannot coexist in the same heart. They're mutually exclusive. Joys of pardon are what mingle with sorrow of, over our sin. You know what he's referring to here. We experience it. When we sin, if you're rightly related to God, you, you hate yourself. Well, how could I do this against God? And yet, with that uh, uh, grief, that sorrowing over letting down our king, there is also the joy that pardon brings. Lord, as you restore that joy into my life, would you sustain me with a willing, or as the NASB translates it, a generous spirit? You know, he's, he's generous, he's willing, he's eager to uphold the believer. Moving right along, verses 13 through 17, we learn the lesson of a consecration of life Notice these three requests that are things that result from forgiveness. Once David's forgiven, David promises, okay, God, here's what I'm going to do. Here's a response to your lavish forgiveness poured into my life. I'll teach transgressors your way. And Psalm 32 is a fulfillment of that vow, where the repentant sinner becomes an evangelist in effect, telling others where he's found the bread of life. So if you, like David, are a forgiven Christian, a forgiven believer, a forgiven saint, though you might have been an adulterer or a murderer like he was, offering a ministry of helps to others to escape their shackles of sinful living. I like how James Montgomery Boyce weighed in on this in his Psalms commentary. He says, let us remember... That everything we do affects other people, whether for good or evil. It is not true that we can sin as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, quote-unquote, because sin always hurts someone. But it is also true 
that those who confess their sin find forgiveness and renewal and teach others the ways of God and become a blessing in turn, unquote. That's what David was going to do. As he consecrated his life to the Master's use, experiencing God's forgiveness through confession, communicating the truth that God, you know, if, if you're seeking to hide your sin, God's going to afflict you for it. I'm going to teach transgressors your way, Lord, that the way of a transgressor is hard. You have chosen poorly in life. Secondly, Lord, not only will I, will I tr- teach transgressors your way as a minister of reconciliation, he says, deliver from blood guiltiness. Open my lips to sing your praise. This is another appropriate response for us to forgiveness. You know, the enormity of sin still continued to burden him. I think one of the problems is that we don't think often or deep enough about our sin. When we do recognize the depth of depravity and the height of redemption that we experience through Christ alone, the astounding debt that was paid on our account, that was received not through merit but by by divine grace, What's, our, what's the only response? We get lost in wonder, love, and praise. So that we, uh, if, if He's going to teach transgressors God's way, we're also going to teach transgressors the song of the redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Our song of deliverance, a song of salvation. And a third request here, that if God, God if you forgive me, I'm going to offer you a sacrifice of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Notice what he says here. It's, you, you could very easily misread. He says in verse 16, Lord, you don't delight in sacrifice. But God does delight in sacrifice. God Himself is the one that prescribes sacrifices. So what does it mean that he doesn't delight in sacrifices? There must be some kind of sacrifice he doesn't delight in. And beloved, there is. It's the hypocritical sacrifice that he scathes religious, unrighteous Israel for. God's not offended by animal sacrifice. He's not offended by burnt offerings. He's the one that ordained them and instructed and commanded their use. But he's dishonored by empty ritual. If there is not a heart of commitment and penitence of the sinner who comes to worship, we can't be holding on to our sin and worshiping God at the same time. They're incongruous with each other. Ritual without repentance is useless. God delights more in a contrite heart than legal sacrifices. He desires the sacrifices. He desires the worship, but the worship of a contrite one. He delights more in one's prayer of confession than if they sing a solo in the choir when they're still holding on to their sin. Humility before God, brokenness over our sin are expressions of genuine confession, and David knew it. 
Instead of hardness of heart, there must be a brokenness of heart, a shattering of ego, and a crushing of pride. Hardened soil of the heart must be broken up, it must be plowed, it must be crushed. We must respond to Him in obedience and worship and service. God's looking for hearts that know how little they deserve and how much they owe. The heart of a true worshiper. And you notice finally, at the end, verses 18 and 19, He's, he's concerned for one thing alone, God's glory. He's concerned for God's glory. He was aware of the close connection between his personal holiness as the king of Israel and the national blessings that God would pour out. That if there's sin in the camp, there can be no blessing of God. Indeed, character counts. The sins of leaders affect other people as well as themselves. First, he comes to personal renewal then to corporate renewal. That God's blessing would rest upon Jerusalem and the sacrifices offered within the walls of the city through true worshipers, the redeemed. You look at, at that prayer for God's glory. He says, God, would you, by your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, You'll delight in the righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. Young bulls will be offered on your altar. If the leader is right with God, leading God's people in rightness, God can bless His people. You've heard me in teaching moments before share concern over people's unbalanced interaction with society, how that so many churches have lost their gospel balance. There's either that extreme of the moral majority, a group that gets so involved in politics as Christians that they forget that we're first and foremost evangelists, not politicians. Or pouring souls into social improvement and then secondarily the gospel if we ever open our mouths at all. We need to be reminded, we've got one message, church. Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. So the question is, are you right with Him? Are we engaging culture? As we were studying Titus and we got to chapter 3 about, about uh, godly citizenship. I don't usually get a chance to go to town meetings. I'm serving on a town board so that I can, Lord willing, get some opportunity to speak into people's lives, some gospel sanity. At the ROTC meeting this week, I saw one other Christian there. I'm planning on printing off the uh, flyer for the cookout so that Newtown Bible Church can kind of show up, as many of us as can, and try to interact with people in our community looking to make a segue from conversation about politics and conversation about families and conversations about weather and conversations about the sports team to what are you going to do with Jesus so you're ready to meet your maker? Are we praying that God 
will bring to us broken sinners through the doors of Newtown Bible Church. Not knowing what to do with the mess of their lives that they've made as they follow the passion of their fallen hearts. David gives us a real glimpse into our own depravity, our own need for regular repentance and seeking the forgiveness of God. You might wonder, what's wrong with the world? Many years ago, there was a famous correspondence in the London Times under the subject, what is wrong with the world today? In this editorial, the writer researched and reported on the various moral and social ills plaguing the world, and the article called for an answer rhetorically from their readers. The best letter mailed to the editor was a reply from that distinguished G.K. Chesterton. Dear Editor, what's wrong with the world, you may ask? I am faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. Unquestionably, the heart of the world's problems is the sinfulness of human beings. Sin is the issue. The gospel has the cure. The source of each person's problem lies in sin, not specifically their own sins. We live in a sin-cursed world. We as individual Christians must set a watch over our lives. Once sin is made known to our, our heart, confession must be followed immediately. And the good news is, is the full forgiveness God offers, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all, not just some unrighteousness. Beloved, take home a set of questions to meditate on, to percolate, to, to try to put into practice what David teaches us today. Ask yourself, do I have a proper view of myself and my own sin nature? Ponder whether you spend adequate time confessing your sin to the Lord each day. When confessing your sin, do you identify the specific sins that you're guilty of committing? And having received the pardon of your Father in heaven, do you praise God? Would you pray with me? Oh God, we, we entered this world estranged from You, enslaved to sin from the womb, yet You in Your grace rescued us for Your own praise and Your own glory. You made us a people to be called by Your name, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Lord, we would ask You to shower Your mercy upon us by blotting out our transgressions, washing away our iniquities and cleansing us from our sins. We confess that our, our nation has sinned, our church has sinned, and we individually have sinned. Against You alone, we've committed treason. We've acted in a way that is not worthy of our calling in Christ. So, Lord, would you regularly, through our repenting, restore the joy of our salvation. Give us a willing spirit that we'd be sustained in your way. May we offer to you the proper sacrifices of a, a broken spirit over our waywardness and a contrite heart. In the name of the Lord Jesus, at whose table we sit this morning, amen.